With that, I would invite you this morning to grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 21. I know this is a passage that everybody's been anticipating and and longing to get into as we uh, dive into the Mosaic Law Code today. Uh, In case you're worried, I'm not going to read through the entirety of this. Uh, That would take up most of the time here. But I do just want to read some excerpts from this passage, and those should be on the screen. So if you would, stand with me. As we give attention, just just read from God's Word. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, he shall not go out, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as his daughter." If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. When a man strikes his slave, verse 20, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Chapter 22, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Chapter 23, verse 19. The best of the firstfruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is God's word. Let's pray together as we look into it. Father, we come in recognition of what you have done to gather people to yourself mission that you set out on so long ago, and that you are continuing through the proclamation of your gospel to call people from every tongue and every nation to be known by you and to enter into a relationship with you. And so we, we, we gather this morning as your people because of what you have done, and we look into your word to receive from you, and as we wrestle through a passage that for us is, is very difficult to even understand and wrap our minds around. I pray that you'd give us insight and understanding as a people and that you would guide us into truth. So I pray that you'd use my words, all the the labor and the the work that has gone into this uh, to make much of you. I pray that you would use this to draw our hearts to know and love you more. And I pray that you would shape us to be the people that you have always desired to make us. 
And we ask this in the glorious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, as I read those words, I imagine you were all sitting there thinking, I'm glad I came today. This should be a fun one. And uh, Aaron did a great job last couple weeks kind of uh, walking us through the Ten Commandments over the last couple weeks. And everybody loves the Ten Commandments, right? Other than the Sabbath that can be a little confusing, like nobody gets too offended when we're told not to murder, to tell the truth. But uh, here in the giving of the law in chapter 21, the law kind of takes a right-hand turn, right? And uh, these are not the verses that are probably on your Scripture memory list for the year. They are not ones that you're going to easily find, uh, you know, printed on a coffee mug. But we need to still give attention to them. And this is what happens when you preach through books of the Bible, which is why I think it, I love that we're committed to doing that regularly here at the crossing is because we were forced to, to wrestle with God's Word and, and, the, and the whole of it and, and how it fits together. So this section of Exodus, and, and many like it in the books like Deuteronomy and Leviticus, uh, are, are, are some of the most challenging texts for us as modern readers to grapple with. These sections are notoriously debated in terms of, of how and if at all they apply to the Christian life. They, uh, they are ones that, that, that have many different perspectives and, and opinions on, and, and so I don't anticipate that I'm going to answer all the questions. In fact, I may actually generate more questions than we answer by the end of this. But as we wade into this passage that can feel like a minefield for any interpreter, I think it's important for us to remember how the Apostle Paul spoke of the whole of the Old Testament in 2 Timothy when he wrote that all Scripture, including these chapters, they are breathed out by God and they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God will be complete and equipped for every good work. So as difficult as it is for us to, to get our heads around these commands, we need to remember that they are written for us. It's important to distinguish that they're not written to us, but they are written for us. And we need to remember that there's a purpose in them to shape us, to teach and reprove and correct and equip us for everything that God wants us to be as His people. And so as we enter into this, the million-dollar question that Christians have asked for centuries is, what is the relationship of the Mosaic law, that given under the Old Covenant, what is the relationship of that law to the life of the New Covenant community? <clears throat> could ask, what is the enduring obligation of these commands to us living on this side of the cross? And I know that we may not answer that question in full, but my desire here is to at least push us on a trajectory to begin to read and understand these things in the light of the coming of Jesus. And I hope we can at least begin to be intrigued by these things, to dig deeper into them, and at best, get excited about knowing God's law to where we can, in unison with, with David and others in the Psalms as they declared that God's law is righteous and good. We desire to hide God's Word in our hearts so that we will not sin against God. And so, there's a lot of approaches that I thought about taking, but, but I want to start by just, just trying to give us a framework of how to even approach these commands. Uh, back in, I think it was 7th or 8th grade, I 
and found out that I had to start wearing corrective lenses. My vision wasn't great, and so uh, I wear contact lenses every day, normally. And uh, when I don't have those lenses in, you know, I can, I can still see, I can still kind of make my way around, but it's pretty blurry. Nobody would probably want me on the road without them in. Um, can't see things well. But when I put those contact lenses in my eyes, everything comes into focus, becomes clear. And there's times that I actually have to go back to the eye doctor, like anybody that wears glasses, and, and, and get your eyes checked and maybe adjust those lenses and, and continue to, to help you to see clearly. And I think it's just, just an illustration of, of how we approach a passage like this. So often we approach it with just our, our kind of natural vision. And we don't realize that, a, that our natural vision to read ancient Near Eastern Jewish literature is pretty faulty. And so we may begin to kind of judge and read the Old Testament laws on our modern terms. And when we do that, then these things become, well, at first glance, maybe just disorganized. Like, who put this together? Uh, We got everything just kind of mixed together in different categories. What's the rhyme or reason or the structure here? We've seen over the years people try to kind of categorize these things, and there are all kind of ways we can try to make sense of it or, or in all, but but it, it is kind of a messy list of things, right? Like, why so specific on this, but other circumstances aren't even really mentioned here? Then we, we, we come up on these commands regarding slaves. Like, why are we even talking about how to deal with slaves in the Bible? You know, then, you know, we see that it, maybe it just seems kind of excessive. Some of these judgments and the sanctions on some of these things, like there's a lot of things you could be put to death for, it seems like. And so with our, with our just natural modern vision, we look at the text and we, we are confused and, and it's, it's just blurry and we stumble over it. And so I, I want to challenge us and just, just try to help us maybe try to find some, some corrective lenses to put on as we approach a passage like this in the Old Testament. And that first lens is what I want to call the historical lens. And I think this probably makes sense for us. We have to have a historical lens to be able to view this passage. To remember that this was written roughly 3,500 years ago. In a different time and place. And when we, when we have this historical lens on it, it allows us to recognize that God encountered Israel in a specific time in human history. In an ancient Near Eastern culture, it was very different than ours. And we have to recognize that theologically speaking, God at times accommodates His revelation to particular historical contexts and even to the fallen social structures within them. So it should not surprise us that that Israel living at this time is is a patriarchal society that has slavery systems at the, at the core of much of its economic structures that views people and slots them into different social categories and that shapes the way that they live together as a people. That's how it worked. So we have to remember, as, as, as the, the scholar Michael Heiser says, that, that, that the Scriptures assume a culture. It's not creating necessarily a culture all on its own out of nothing, but it actually is spoken into a, a, a culture that already exists. That at least helps shape the way that we start to read these things. Remember, where has the nation of Israel been for the last 400 years? Under slavery, in Egypt, 
How do you think that shaped them as a, as a society and as a people? They had, didn't, didn't have any of these Scriptures given to them. The Bible wasn't just, you know, given all at once. And so as we read these things, we need to remember that these laws don't command or uphold the social institution or practice as a common good, but the laws provide counsel on what to do within a specific socioeconomic setting and when confronted with sin and brokenness within that setting. These laws then speak wisdom and guidance toward a more just way to live within a pre-existing culture. We see that in the law, God is actually invading and even subverting the social institutions, and He's ultimately transforming them toward a higher ideal. Take slavery, for instance. We can't just assume and and have the grid that we often do of the the race-based slavery that has characterized much of our nation's history. Not to say it was all great, but it was different. This was not the forced capturing of an ethnic population. In fact, if you read down into 21 verse 16, what does it say? It tells us that whoever steals a man, kidnaps and oppresses a man and sells him into slavery, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. There was a, there was a strong deterrent towards enslaving people against their will, even in the Old Testament law. And so much of, we have to realize that much of the practice was rooted in the economic structure of the society at the time. And it ultimately functioned more along the lines of an indentured servant who was seeking to work off a debt. And within that setting, it oftentimes was a means of survival where, where, where they sold themselves in to, to pay off a debt. And many of the laws implicitly speak to the actual value of the human life. The idea of the, the slave gaining their freedom in the seventh year would have been radical within that context. It shows that, that a lifelong servitude of another human being is, is not the ideal. In verse 20, the life of the slave is actually avenged when a master kills them. Verse 21 may cause us to cringe as it declares that that when a, when a slave survives for a little bit, there isn't anything that happens because the slave is his money. And even, even that, we, we have to recognize that it isn't necessarily speaking to the value of the human life, but actually to the kind of social structure and the economics that were involved in that. That a man could punish his slave, but he couldn't take it so far as to take his life. There were limitations on that. And if he did hurt his slave, he ultimately was only impacting his own situation because the slave functioned as the one who was working off the debt and the money that he had, had paid to him. So these laws are, are pushing out towards a more just system. And when taken collectively, they actually would create a context in which slavery doesn't look a whole lot like slavery. We can look at the death penalty strewn throughout this entire passage. That if a, if, a, uh, if a man strikes his parents, he's going to be put to death. Why, why are there so many times in which the death penalty is, is, is called upon? And I think we, even with that, we have to recognize that when that's listed, apart from, from, from crimes of, of, of intentional murder, 
Whenever that is listed, it's given as kind of the maximum penalty, but not necessarily required. And we have other passages that speak to, to a, a payment of, of, of money and a, a ransom that can be paid for a life. But in the end, if it, like, it's the maximum penalty that could be meted out within that setting. As we look at these laws in their context, we realize that they're not exhaustive by any means. They don't cover every instance of, of human interactions. Even if you add up all of the, the 50 so that are here, as well as the ones in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you're going to come up with about 613 laws. And then the Jews ended up trying to expand on those and, and understand and unpack those things even further as they wrote the Mishnah and the Talmud that kind of d- explained those things even more into other traditions and how to live those things out. But they were never intended to cover everything that, that could possibly come up and be just a perfect law book. They function as a compendium, a kind of short collection of things. And so then they serve to illustrate practical applications, I think, ultimately of the Ten Commandments. As the Ten Commandments are the stable, like, like foundation of it all, all these things are saying, hey, this is how these things might play out and look within your society. And so they're composed of, of a couple different types of laws. The technical term, if you're interested, is on, on one sense we have apodictic laws that are kind of these like general like statements. You shall do this. You shall not do that. And some of them take on that kind of form. But most of them are actually what we call casuistic laws that, that function as case law within the society. And what to do. If this happens, then, then here's wisdom on how to do that. And so within that, that setting, they function not as just absolute commands and prohibitions, but they serve as instructions for this redeemed community. And within this setting, we realize that these laws are vastly different from the practices of the surrounding pagan nations. When compared with other law codes that we found within the ancient Near East, these are, these are vastly different in, in, in the type of community that they're trying to set forth. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses actually declared what their law should declare to the nations. When he said that, that I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord God commanded, that you should do them in the land that you are entering. He said, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God that's so near them as our God is to us when we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The Old Testament law functioned to actually be a declaration to the nations of a more righteous and just society, a community marked off and set apart under the rule and reign of God. So there's a a, a vast historical setting that we have to begin to enter into as a people and as a community to be able to even make sense of many of these laws. So we must have and be aware of the historical lens. The other lens that I think is equally as important is the redemptive lens. We have to learn to apply the law as Christian Scripture. The giving of the law is set within God's unfolding plan of redemption. It's given to a specific people in a unique time. It's not given to all humanity, but it's given to Israel under a theocracy, a a, a nation ruled directly by God. 
And so that changes the way that we assume that these laws then should be implemented into our modern society, as if they should be the law of the land and we expect them to be. First and foremost, they apply to God's people, and if there is application, it's, it's somewhat limited to the, the, the Christian community. Now, we could say that there's a sense in which, through God's common grace to the world, that as, as God's law is embodied and, and, and enacted into the legislation of the land, then that will lead to the greater flourishing of human society as a whole. But first and foremost, it is, these were written to the theocratic kingdom of Israel and applied specifically within the context of the covenant community. And so within that time and within that progressing revelation of God and His plan of redemption, we have to recognize that the law then served a prophetic function. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. He said, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, until John the Baptist. I think we can understand, well, yeah, the prophets prophesied. That's what they did, right? The prophets prophesy. But you may say, well, how did the law prophesy? What did, what, what did it prophesy about? How did it, how did it have a prophetic function? One thing you, you recognize when, when something is, is functioning prophetically is that it's planned to come to an end. In principle, it was going to become obsolete because it was not meant to be that which everything terminated on, but that which pointed towards something else. You see, the law was never intended just to get a group of people to obey a bunch of random and arbitrary commands of their deity, but it served at this point to mark off a community that was redeemed into a covenant relationship with God. And as it functioned within that setting, it, it actually revealed Israel's inability to be a faithful covenant partner. They could never measure up and fulfill the terms of the covenant. So as we recognize it had a prophetic function, we must then see how Jesus actually said that He stood in relation to the law. He did this in Matthew 5 when He said this about it. He said, do, you not, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. You know, Jesus was, was starting to get accused of kind of disregarding the law and kind of being flexible with the law code. And Jesus says, hey, don't, don't, don't think that I have come here to just do away with the law and set it completely aside. But actually, he says something very profound when he says, I've come to fulfill it. Which may beg the question, what, is, what does it mean for a person to fulfill a bunch of law codes? What does that mean? Does that, does that mean that he just obeyed these things fully? He obeyed all the laws? He, he traded slaves in the right way? And then he uh, you know, made sure that his ox's horn was ground down so it didn't gore his neighbor? No, that's not, not what Jesus is, is ultimately saying. I think Jesus is saying something like that, that He came to be that to which all of the law pointed. We could say that He was the, the, the type of human that the law was put in place to create and to shape was seen in perfection in Jesus. He was the only perfect Israelite. He was the only true covenant Son. He was the faithful one. Which is so massive for us because then when we put our faith in Jesus, there's this, this 
idea that, that, that we are united with Christ. And it's His perfect righteousness and obedience and fulfillment of the law that then is given to and credited to us. Jesus takes the curse of the covenant for all of our failures to obey the demands of the law. He takes that curse on Himself when He goes to the cross in our place. And we are united with Him. So then, as those in Christ, we may ask, what then is our relationship to this law? Well, Paul, in his letters, said over and over things like this. He said, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. He said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He says, through the law, I died to the law. He said that you are not under law, but you are under grace. If you're led by the Spirit, you are no longer under law. We are freed from the demands of the Mosaic law, in a sense. And so it is our union with Christ that shapes the way that we now view the Old Testament law. To remind us what Aaron unpacked for us very clearly in the last couple of weeks, that the law served these purposes of restraining evil, of showing us our need ultimately of a Savior because we couldn't keep it. But also it continues then to show us how to live in line with the character and the nature of God. Not as a burden, as a new set of rules, but as we grow into our identity as those who are in Christ. Which is why Paul then can later say that that when he ministered to those who were outside the law, namely Gentiles, non-Jewish people, he could act as one who was outside the law. He didn't have to obey the, the kosher meal regulations and all these, these festivals. He felt no obligation to those things. But yet he, he qualifies and says, I, I, want you to, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that I'm not under any kind of law. I'm not outside the law of God, but actually I now am under the law of Christ. And as Christ is the embodiment of all that the law represented, as we are in Him... We are under this new law, this new law of Christ, and this was God's plan from the beginning. He knew that the old covenant could never be a way to deal with sin. And He would ultimately make a new covenant in which He would write the law on human hearts. That's what He does for us who are in Christ. So we have freedom from the law, and yet then we look to Jesus and see how He reminds us then of the goodness of the law and what it served to ultimately do. He reminds us to to look past the mere commands of the law to get to the heart of the law. And Jesus did this so beautifully in the Sermon on the Mount when He declared that the heart of, of the command to not murder is actually anger in our heart towards others. Commands against adultery is not just about sex, but it's actually about lust in your heart towards another. Laws about oaths are really about truthfulness with our words. Laws about how you treat your neighbor are actually calling us to see and ask whether we are a true and faithful neighbor to everyone that we encounter. Even the Old Testament prophets continued to rebuke the nation of Israel for not actually upholding the heart of the law. Sure, they obeyed the, the sacrifices and all the ritual, and they were, they, they were on their P's and Q's with all of the, the, the ceremonial aspects of the law, but they had failed to actually live as a community of justice and righteousness. In Micah 6, he says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So therefore, our goal, as we look into a passage like Exodus 21 and on, is not just to to go and to pick and choose and identify a new list of commands that apply today, which ones are relevant and just kind of create a new rule book, but we look to them and we recognize them for what they are as they are culturally conditioned examples that should in some way point us to a higher ideal that can ultimately lead us as those who are united to Christ to embody the nature and the character of God that we were meant to live in as His image bearers. And this is why for Jesus it was so simple for Him to sum up the whole of the law when a lawyer came to him and said, hey, what's the greatest commandment of the, of the ten words? What's the greatest? And he actually speaks from a, a different portion of the law. When he, said, when he responds and he says, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you can't just leave it there. You have to add the second with it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these commands depend all of the law and the prophets. Everything is summed up simply in these two things. Paul in Romans 13 reiterated this too when he quoted the Ten Commandments and he said this, any other commandment, all of these things are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So when we look at all these commands, all these strange demands of the law are the outworking of the calling of humanity to love God above all things and to love our neighbor. And just think, what would, what would result if we became a community who lived into that fully? Well, everything we did was, was, was born out of a love for God and a love for neighbor. I think we would actually begin to create a community in which the written code becomes unnecessary. Sounds a whole lot more like Eden or heaven. So you may at this point ask, okay, Rich, I think I'm tracking with you, but why can't we just stop there? Why can't we just say, hey, let's just love God and love neighbor, go out of here and just hold those things up and just, just do that. Why, why study and observe these ancient law codes that seem so distant from us? And we must do no less than that. We must do no less than, 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 than wear the, the lens of, of loving God and loving neighbor at all times in, in, in what we're called to be. But I think we need to wrestle with and and recognize that our lives are are, are lived not in abstract general activities, but in very specific and varied relationships and situations. And so by observing the wisdom of the law that guided God's people in their context, we're able to see the law as an enduring source of wisdom through which we can discern new applications for how to love God and our neighbor and to live into the character of God in our cultural and historical moment. And again, we do not look to the law to create a new rule book, but to guide us into the type of humanity that God always intended for us to be. And as we look to the law, we begin to discern the path toward human flourishing.
At this point in the first sermon, I felt like I gave a really long introduction. Many of you are like, okay, are we going to finish here? With, our, with the last little bit of time, I just, I just want to try to boil down and just draw out some, some, some implications for this. Because we can never dive into, in, in, into these, the nuance of these without having a grid through which we can see it. But we need to then begin to see the character of God in the law as Christians. And how we do that, you may ask, because, because at the end of the day, when you come to it, it still reads that if a man seduces a woman, he should buy her to be his wife. And that's a fair point. We still have to wrestle through that with a historical lens, in a, with a redemptive lens. And as we do this as a community, this is not merely an individual exercise, but this is, this is the life and practice of the Christian community to learn to discern the enduring ideal that the law actually represented tried to think of how to illustrate this, and the best I could come up with was, was just, just think about driving down Horsetooth Road. What is the speed limit on that road? I think it's 40 miles an hour. Is there something intrinsically virtuous and, and moral about driving 40 miles an hour down that road? No, not necessarily. But, but someone who has studied traffic patterns and, and structures with, within communities has said, hey, we, we need to limit the, the speed and create a consistency on that pathway so that people in our community can get around safely. And so we've designated it to be 40 mile an hour. seems to be a safe, consistent speed for people to drive. So imagine if overnight the United States was overthrown, the state of Colorado no longer existed, and we had a new dictator who just came in and said, hey, we're not going to declare any, any uh, speed limit laws in the land now. So as you hop back out on Horsetooth Road within that governing situation, and maybe they haven't taken down the, the speed limit sign, as you look at that sign, what, how, what is your relationship to that? You can drive by and say, hey, that, that, that sign has no authority over me. That was part of an, of an old regulation. And so you are, you are free from that law. What kind of person, what kind of citizen would, would it make you if you looked at that, that, that sign and just said, hey, I'm not under that, I'm now going to drive 80 miles an hour down this road. Like, I hope you see, like, like, like when you look at that sign, it's, it, it's not merely just about driving a certain speed limit as if that's good in of itself, but it's, it's pointing to, to, to this higher ideal that as we drive around within a, a, a community around us, we need to consider others. And approach our life and our practices in a way that is, is considerate and honoring towards those around us. And I think in, in many ways as we dig into the law, we're, we're seeing past just merely these specifically culturally conditioned commands towards a higher ideal that God is drawing us into. When you look at this passage, you have worship rituals and, and social responsibilities. We have slavery issues and we have you know, issues of injuring other humans and, and when an animal injures a human and we have personal property rights and honesty and, and caring for the disadvantaged, then you throw in sorcery and bestiality and the worship of false gods and it just seems like a grab bag, right? And some of these things may be really easy to kind of pull over and kind of see some kind of enduring guidance and wisdom for us and other ones just seem very obscure. I'm not really into uh, reality TV shows very much. 
But one of them that for some reason kind of captivated me a few years ago was one called Gold Rush. And I don't know why, but I watched it for a couple, few seasons. And these guys would go up to uh, the Yukon in Alaska and, and go and uh, try to dig up gold that hadn't been found back in the Gold Rush days. And so uh, they, would, they, would, they would use this ma- massive equipment to move just tons and tons and tons of dirt over the course of a summer. And one thing you'd notice in that is that, that sometimes in their, in their efforts of, of panning or just looking and searching for gold, they would find a nugget that was kind of not very deep or, or, or was just right there and they, they'd come across that and it would, it would show up really easily. Then other times they would have to dump tons and tons and tons of dirt through this wash plant to filter out and, and find all this, this flakes of gold. Which, which on their own, any, any of them maybe didn't, didn't, wasn't, wasn't, didn't hold that much value, but collectively over the course of the summers, they would collect that week in and week out. They would leave with a fortune at the end of the, at the, end of the time. And I think, I think sometimes the Scriptures can be like that for us. Or sometimes there's just, just something that God just, just, just very clearly declares to us that's easy to, to see and to apply and even, even speak into our lives. And other times it takes a lot of work to, to dig into it, into its historical setting, into, into the, the nuance of it, and be, be, begin to wrestle with how and in what sense might this even be relevant to us. But as we do that as a community, we're collecting in many ways the, the, the gold of the wisdom of God's Word that points us to, to continue to see in more fullness the righteousness and the character of God. And just a couple ways that this shows up within a passage like this. We begin to see as we, as we, as we turn over these laws, we see the, the, the respect and the value and dignity of all people that's contained here. When a slave is, is called to go free in his seventh year, and then even in, under the right circumstances, we get this obscure, seemingly barbaric situation in which a slave who wants to stay with his family and his master has his hole pierced through on his door. And even in that, I don't think I'm taking it too far to say that that's kind of pointing towards a situation in which if there is love and, the, and care within whatever broken social situation that can be, that can lead to a place in which maybe two people that maybe are on very different economic positions can find unity and love for one another. When this man sells his daughter, which was a practice of the day that was, that was very normal to, to sell his daughter and receive a dowry that would sustain the family economically and all, but would also provide a future care for his daughter into marriage. In that situation, you know, most of the time, those women didn't have any protection, but here the law actually provides protection for her. That that man can't just discard her or sell her to somebody else. He has to provide a means, if he no longer wants her, to, to, to pay her back. And then, if he's given to his son to marry, he treats her as his very own daughter. And if he refuses to actually care for her, then she actually goes out for free and he loses the dowry that he paid for her. So there's actually, the, in, in this setting, a care for the life and the dignity of this young woman. You cannot steal another person, like we said, and, and commit them into slavery. Within here, we see the value of all human life. Even the death penalty itself, in, in cases of murder, is, is there to dis- declare that life cannot be taken easily. It's given by God. There's this strange situation in which men are fighting and a, and a pregnant woman gets hit. 
and her, her, her child comes out. We, we, there's a little bit of lack of clarity on whether this is a miscarriage or a, a premature birth. It seems to indicate that this is, this is a, a premature birth. And what we see within this, this, this law is actually the life and the value of that child even before it's born because if there is harm, I think it can be applied either to the mother or the child, then actually the life of that person who injured her is called upon. And even in here, in this ancient text, there's the value and dignity of life found even before birth, which is a far more just and righteous law than that which we see ruling much of our land today. Within this, we're called as a people to recognize our own personal responsibility. Hey, if your ox injures somebody and you knew that it might do that, then that's on you. If you dig a pit and you don't make sure that it's safe for other people to walk around, then that's on you. Now, probably not many of us have ox or digging pits. But where do we fail to take responsibility in our lives for our actions that hurt others? Even just in our relationships with our, with our, with our kids or with our, with our spouses, when we say something hurtful, do we write it off? Well, I just didn't intend that. Are willing to own our hurts and our wrongs towards others, to take personal responsibility and to seek restoration and reconciliation in those things. Throughout this passage, we're called over and over again to utilize our resources for the benefit of the community. Bruce Waltke summarizes it well when he says, it's the righteous who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. And the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. This is not some call for socialism, but this is a call for a heart that is changed to see others as more significant than themselves. Laws about not charging interest. I wouldn't fly in much of our banking practices today. But if you're going to help someone out, you shouldn't be looking merely just to gain off of their uh, situation. When you see your enemy's donkey escape, you shouldn't just say, well, that stinks for him, but you should actually sacrifice your time to protect and preserve his livelihood. In the seventh year, you actually have to let your, your field just lie and grow naturally. Because that could be a source of, of sustenance and care for the poor among you and even for the animals. Which, which tells us that, that everything that we have, we don't just gather and consume just for ourselves, just so that we get everything that we want and just hoard everything for us. But there's an openness to say that I've been, giving all of, I've been given all of this stuff to actually be a blessing to others, to look down on those who are in a, in a, in a lesser situation than I and how I can extend care towards them. We should have a fair treatment of others with our words and our actions rather than seeking to exploit the community for our good. All the commands about stealing and defrauding and deception and negligence all indicate and reveal to us the propensity of our hearts to put ourselves above others and to fail to love our neighbors. Many commands on, on the worship of Israel. And yeah, we could say that many of these things don't apply in some direct sense. But within this, it, it calls us to, to recognize that how we worship God matters. 
We can't easily mix pagan idolatry and the worship of God. And we're told to do things like to not delay from the fullness of your harvest. Well, you may not have a field, but all that stuff that you have, it's actually given to you from God. So you're willing to give to Him first and foremost, not just out of the scraps, but out of your abundance. Throughout the law, we're called to see that we, we, we need to seek to have a heart that is oriented towards others. When we don't pervert justice, we don't take a bribe, don't look down and oppress people who are different than us, but rather we cultivate a heart of compassion, justice, honesty, and a heart to protect the vulnerable. So we're never just asking, which of these are we supposed to do? Which, which ones of these do I have to kind of submit my life to and kind of begrudgingly come under? We're never looking to just go and create a new rule book for us to follow. And if we continue to do that, I think we're missing the whole point and the whole thrust of the redemptive arc of Scripture. Because this is less about merely the rules that we're called to follow, and it's more about the type of human that God wants to shape us to be. So we need to have new lenses to wear as we approach the Scriptures. We certainly need to have a historical lens We need to have a redemptive lens, but the lens we most of all need to have is a lens to love God above all things and to allow that love to flow down into the love of neighbor. Because we will never be able to read the law right if we can't first read our Bibles correctly in light of what Christ has done for us, what He has accomplished in our place to unite us to Himself. And we don't need a better list of rules What we actually need is a new heart. And we cannot law away humanity's brokenness. Even today, we cannot legislate a perfect society. Regardless of your opinions on the election that went down this last year, regardless of who is in in power within our nation, no set of legislative laws will be able to generate and create a perfect and just society. We should care about those things as Christians but that cannot be our hope. Our hope can only be in the transforming work of the Gospel, in the reality of the new covenant breaking through into all of our lives as we recognize the words in the book of Hebrews that declares our greatest need. That we need a new covenant. One that was different from the one that was made with the fathers on the day when God took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in His covenant. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says that He will put His laws into our minds and He will write them on our hearts and He will be our God and they shall be His people. And that is ultimately the hope of all humanity. It's not a new set of rules, a new set of laws, but it is a transformed heart. And when we as the church begin to live into that ideal, we can be a a transforming effect on our culture and our society that will lead people to look at us and say, wow, what a great people this is. What, What kind of God do they serve that is so near to them 
that has created such a righteous and a loving and a just community. I want to be a part of that. We cannot do this on our own. This is a work done by the Spirit in our lives as we live into our identity as those united in Christ. So that is my prayer for us, that we first recognize what Christ has done, who we are, and how we then relate to and can live out the ideals set forth in the laws. It points us to know the righteous character of God that He desires to work in and through our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. There's so many things, that more that could be said, but I pray that You take these many words that I've spoken and use them to shape and transform our lives. Let us recognize and live in light of, of the reality that You have saved us, that You came to atone for our sins and to unite us to Yourself, to Your perfect righteousness. So we are no longer under the demands of the law, and yet we are under Your law that leads towards a life of flourishing. So empower us to be a people that You've called us to be, not on our efforts or on our shoulders, but as we are carried along by Your Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.